Um, so there's, but before we get started, I want to uh, just bring your attention to a little, there's a little book series called Church Basics that are really handy. They're, um, let's see, they're about, I don't know, 10 or 12 chapters, each chapter is just a few pages, and they're about, total about 60 pages in length. Um, these little books, one of them is Understanding the Lord's Supper, another one is Understanding Baptism, and they're very handy. They're written by Baptists, for Baptists, and so uh, they're, they're, very, they're really very good, and they just kind of basically walk through a biblical understanding of, of the topic, and so I think these are really handy. I, I'm going to aim to get a few of them and just kind of uh, put them out here in the foyer that people can have and, uh, and take away, because they're relatively cheap, $5 or so. And um, they're, but they're very good. They're very concise, very clear, and very short to the point. It's uh, really, really pretty handy. Um, I have to own up to something that I said that I didn't even realize I said. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago we were doing the Lord's Supper, and I made a statement from the pulpit that where I, where I said, uh, somebody's going to have to help me to make sure I get the quote right, but I said something to the effect of the people that can take the Lord's Supper are baptized adults. And that needs a lot of clarification, and I just kind of left it as that and, and went on. And I'm not even sure if that was actually in the thing that I read, or if I was just, if I had just said that off the top of my head and didn't even think about it. When somebody called my attention to it, uh, they said, you know, there were some questions about this, and, and so you're probably going to get a lot of questions about this, and so you just need to kind of know that some people might, might be asking questions about it. And I didn't even remember having said it, first of all. But then, uh, sure enough, throughout the week, I started hearing from different small groups about, like, what did you mean by this? When you said this, what did you mean? And then uh, I had some other questions in relation to the Lord's Supper uh, that were kind of a little bit broader. And so I thought it might be worth at least getting on a recording and just kind of talking to as many people as are here um, about what what we believe to be true about the Lord's Supper and how we as Baptists um, practice it. Now, here's a couple of things that I want to say as, as qualifiers. Um, the Lord's Supper and really even, even baptism, um, they are, there's not a, a passage in Scripture that says, here's what you need to do in your church services. Stand up behind the pulpit and say this. And then do it this way. And then it has to be exactly like this, and then do that, and then say amen, and everybody's, everybody's good. Um, so what that means then is be, we, we're, we're taking Scripture from around the Bible, and we're building a, a picture of what we're gathering is what the New Testament is really teaching on the Lord's Supper. And it's not one of those kinds of things that's super clear, like Jesus is the eternal Son of God, right? Uh, or it's not like that, really. And so what that means is there's going to be a, a couple of different views on the Lord's Supper, and really baptism for that matter. There's going to be a couple of different views. and so. But this is not one of those things that separates us as Christians, for the most part. This would be one of those things that would separate denominations in the way that they practice it. But it's not something really that separates uh, Christian from non-Christian. I suppose a non-Christian could take the Lord's Supper, I don't know, in some sort of pagan ceremony, and that would obviously be not Christian. But 
for the most part, between Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans, there's going to be some differences in the way we think about the Lord's Supper, but that don't separate us. In other words, we're going to be in heaven together, right, as, as one body. So it's not something like that. But it is something that's very important, and it does unite us as Baptists. Like, I couldn't go into um, a Presbyterian church and be a member of a Presbyterian church. They practice infant baptism. And I, as a member of that congregation, am looking at the baptism that they're doing, and I'm affirming that as a member of the congregation. I'm required to affirm that as a, as a member of the congregation, that they are covenant uh, family members, in other words. But I can't, in good conscience, affirm that because I don't believe that that's true about baptism. And so that separates us in denomination, but it doesn't separate us from being Christians. The people at Trinity down the road are brothers and sisters in Christ, in other words. Does that make sense? Everybody clear on that? But it's still very important to figure out what is it that we believe. So when I took these questions that were coming at me, I obviously answered them, uh, them there for the, the, the individuals, but I thought there's probably, if there's, if there's five people asking, there's 105 people that are actually talking about it and, and have had the same questions. Uh, so you might as well just address it in as many ways as you possibly can. The questions really boil down to kind of two big categories that we're going to look at tonight. First of all, who can partake in the Lord's Supper? And second, why do we do the Lord's Supper? Like, why do we do it in this particular way? Um, and so I felt like both of them needed to be addressed. But when you ask the question, who can partake in the Lord's Supper, there's really no way you can talk about that without diving into the topic of baptism. So it's important that we have to actually understand baptism first and what we're doing in baptism before we then talk about who can take the Lord's Supper. And just to kind of, spoiler alert, uh, I'm going to tell you that baptized believers in Jesus Christ are the only people that can take the Lord's Supper. And I think that that is the clear picture that's rolled out over the New Testament and then in church history as well. So what you have to understand is that when we have a little bit of a hazy picture in, in the New Testament, it's kind of like looking at objects in a dim light. You, you might think you see a tree... And you're pretty sure that that thing that you're looking at is a tree, but it's too dark to really tell. And then what happens is, after the Bible is closed, we start getting um, Christians from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century begin to compile some of their works. And some of those things that we thought were a tree in those documents confirm, yes, that actually is a tree. That's exactly what you thought baptism was. That's exactly what the church practiced for the first few hundred years. And so it starts to clarify some of those things. So what we're going to do in baptism is lay out what we're doing, what we believe about baptism, why we practice it the way we do, and then how church history has been formed by our practice of baptism and what they believe about baptism as well. So we're going to do this kind of like we do on Wednesday night. We're going to take a couple of uh, passages of Scripture and read them and see what they say and what we can deduce about baptism from these passages of Scripture. Who will take Mark 16, 16? Shannon? Will and Acts 18.8. All right, uh, Blake, I, I just picked one of you, sorry. You know. <laughs> Mark 16.16 16 and Acts 18.8. All right. 
All right. Now, you see what's happening there, especially you see it really highlighted in the passage Shannon had, which was um, believe and be baptized. And then it says, it clarifies, anyone who doesn't... Right. It says anyone who doesn't believe will be condemned. Right? Leaves off baptism. So you have to understand, first of all... Go ahead, Shannon. You say, oh, I thought you were going to say something. Um, you have to understand, first of all, that what we're talking about here is not uh, eternal damnation versus eternal felicity, eternal blessedness, right? We're not, we're not making that distinction. Some people will say, in our, especially in our culture, it's kind of a, a trendy kind of thing to do, is to say, well, uh, if the Bible... Uh, or if the doctrine of Scripture, if Jesus won't send me to hell for not doing this, then I'm just not going to do it. And so what we have is a lot of people going, well, baptism, if I don't get baptized, I won't go to hell. Look at the thief on the cross. And so we have to be careful that what we're saying is not, if you are not baptized, you will be condemned to hell. Right? We, we can't go there. That's a ditch on this side of the road. But we, we can't also say, therefore, it's not required and we, we, don't, we don't have to do it at all. That's a ditch on the other side of the road. We're trying to walk down the road and not get into the ditch. right? Um, so what seems to be true here, he says, uh, believe and be baptized. But then he's clear to say, when it comes to condemnation, if you don't believe, you'll be condemned. So we're not talking about a matter of condemnation here. We're talking about what is the expected uh, result of one who professes faith in Christ. And baptism. And so what you see beginning to form, even very early in the Scripture, even very early in the New Testament is that there is a close link between salvation and baptism. And by that, I don't mean, when I say close link, I don't mean that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. That's, again, back to what I'm saying. That's not what I'm talking about. But a close link in that if you were one, then the other was sure to follow, right? If you were saved, then the expectation was baptism is going to follow. And outside of the thief on the cross, I can't think of one example in the New Testament, where there is a person who is uh, a confessing believer in Jesus Christ in the church that is not baptized. We have this over and over. And in the context of this verse in Mark, you understand it to be water baptism? Yes. Baptism by the Holy Spirit? Or yeah. Baptism? It's a good question. And it is, it is water baptism. I would understand that as water baptism. Um, and the reason that I understand that as water baptism is because the, the apostles are going to pick up the same language in Acts and subsequent to that in the rest of the New Testament. And so what we're looking at there in Mark, I believe, is he's talking about when you are saved, you profess faith in Christ and you are saved, baptism is the expected action that follows right after that. Now, uh, let's look at a couple other passages as well. Uh, Acts 2.37-41, who will take that? 2.37-41, David Maxwell 
How about Acts 22.16? Who will take that? Shannon, go ahead. <laughs> Jeannie, will you take Romans 6, 3 to 4? You take Acts 22.16. Right, David, when you are ready, begin. All right, Shannon, twenty-two, sixteen of Acts. And now, while I delay, get up and be baptized, and have your sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. All right, Romans six, three to four, Jeannie. Now, you see a second layer to this really starting to form. So we said that there's a close link between salvation and baptism. That when there is salvation, baptism was sure to follow. But baptism acts as a symbol of something very real that's going on. And so what we see is that it's associated with receiving the word and the washing away of sins. There is a, a very real picture that when we get into the baptistry... We're taking a person who was living one way in what the Bible would define as the way of sin or as, as subsequent church history documents would, would identify as the, the, the pathway of sin. We're taking this person and we're quite literally washing off, or, or I guess you would say uh, not, not literally, but uh, metaphorically, washing off the sinful filth of the old life and bringing him up out of the water to walk in newness of life. So that symbol is basically associated with somebody that receives it. So once you receive the word, once you receive truth, then that sign of repentance that you now walk in is to get in the waters and have it made public before everybody there watching that I'm a follower of Christ and that the sins that I once walked in are being washed away. Does that make sense? Okay, now, here's where it gets a little tricky. All right, Acts, let's go to Acts. Now, I, I need to say this. Well, let's, let's, let's sign the passages and then let me, let me say this. Acts 1, 4 to 5. Can we read that? All right, uh, uh, Hannah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Miss Wilberding. <laughs> your last name came to the Rolodex quicker than your... <laughs> First name, <laughs> Acts 8, 14 to 16, <laughs> Miss Porter. I uh, <laughs> uh, just go with whichever name comes first. Uh, Acts 10, 44 to 48. All right, uh, Jen, if you'll do that. 
Now, you have to remember as, we're, as they're turning to Acts and they're getting to passages, Acts, the book of Acts, there's a lot going on in the book of Acts, and, it's, and some things are very hard to kind of go, what? Uh, and explain and, and walk through. Um, but what you have to understand about the book of Acts is it's not completely normative. In other words, a lot of what you're seeing in the book of Acts, you're not probably going to see on your street corner, right? On your, on your everyday street corner. There's a lot of exceptional things that are going on in the book of Acts as Jesus begins to establish his church or the Holy Spirit begins to establish a church through the apostles. And so some of the things that we're seeing are not totally normative. And the other thing that I want to say about that is this is also not a study on Acts. So there are some questions that could potentially come up that aren't about what we're talking about tonight, and we're not going to dive into those. Uh, who has Acts 1, 4 to 5? All right, Miss Wilberding. Okay, so there is, a, 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 while we say there's a close link between salvation and baptism, it's very clear that they're also not one and the same, right? That he's telling the apostles, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, even though water baptism has, has taken place some time ago, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, just wait right here, all right? Now, there's going to be some more of this, so Acts 8, 14 to 16. So here, in this passage, you have what's, what's happening. Samaria receives the word. They send... Uh, they send Peter and John to go to them. And what have they already done? They've already been water baptized. They've already been water baptized. But they haven't been spiritually baptized. We would say there, there hasn't been a baptismal regeneration of their heart. They ha there hasn't been a, a Holy Spirit uh, endowed regeneration in their heart yet. They've walked through what they know they were supposed to do. But uh, some things obviously haven't connected yet. And so they're receiving the Holy Spirit now with the apostles uh, coming there, right? Um, so there's a separation of time taking place there. Again, like I said, Acts is a little bit uh, strange. And so we're not going to walk through the rest of that. But a Acts 10, 44 to 48, who has that? Now what do you have here? The exact opposite. It's the, it's the reverse of what happened two chapters earlier. So here is Cornelius. You remember the story. Peter is, is on his, his rooftop or on the rooftop of, a, of a Simon the Tanner. And they tell him, you know, or the Lord appears to him and says, hey, go down. And somebody's here to see you. So he goes down and there is a, a Gentile, a group of Gentiles standing before him. And 
as his, as his teaching, I guess he goes to Cornelius' house, if I remember the story right. He goes to Cornelius' house, and in the midst of his teaching, it becomes clear that they believe. There's a regeneration that takes place. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit prior to being baptized. Right? So all, all we're, we're seeing here is that though there is a close connection between the two, between salvation and baptism, they aren't one and the same. There is also a clear distinction between baptism and salvation. Now, some people will, again, will steer into one ditch that says, hey, if you want to be saved, you have to get in that water. And that's not what we believe. That's not what, obviously, that's not what baptism is about. But that also doesn't remove the importance from it. Does that make sense? It's still a, a very important thing, and at least, not least of which Christ commanded it. So it's something that we go about practicing as a church. But it also becomes clear that though you need to do it as a sign of your confession to the congregation, it, it, it doesn't mean heaven or hell. It's, that's not what we're talking about. Now, let's go to this verse, which should really throw some confusion into the mix. <laughs> 1 Peter 3.21, who will read that out loud for us? What? Now, what did that mean? What did he just say there? <laughs> he, he said first, though, bab, what, what about baptism? Now saves you. Well, I just got done telling you it didn't. What, what does he mean there? What does he mean? Baptism now saves you. And we do know that we're talking about water baptism. You know how we know. Some of you are reading the verse prior to that. What was he talking about in the verse prior to that? Noah and the flood, right? Here's Noah, saved on a boat, through the water. Now, baptism saves you. This is like baptism. It saves you. Now, what does Peter mean here? Go ahead, Erica. That's exactly right. Yeah. The, the baptism, he's saying here that baptism saves you. And then he says, he clarifies, let me, let me find it real quick in mind. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, that's the flood, now saves you. Not, this is what Erica's saying, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying that the, not the, the physical act of going in the water, that's not the part that saves you. 
But in baptism, there is a vow that you're making, are you not? When you stand in the water, you, a sinner, are standing in the water saying, I am repenting of my sin, and as a testimony to the fact that I have repented, I am going under this water and coming out, all right? As a symbol of this repentance, as though my sin were, were actually being washed away. But that's not what's washing the sin away. What is washing it away? An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what you're saying here is that my life from here on out, after I come up out of this water, is going to be different. I'm making a vow before all of you people that are watching that my life subsequent to going in the water is going to be much different than my, my life before I went in. Does that make sense? Yeah. So baptism is connected to the vow to live a life of rejection of sin and Godward obedience. But it's also the way a believer goes public. There's a lot of confusion about this in our churches now, where someone will come to faith in a number of different ways. And we say, well, they, they came to faith, they came to faith, they came to faith. It may be true that they professed faith in Jesus Christ. But what follows that faith? Baptism. Baptism is the way they take that faith and make it public. And the reason is because you don't exist as a Christian in a vacuum. There is no expectation in the New Testament that a Christian would not be in connection with a church in any way. There's just no expectation that that would be the case. That if you are a Christian, you are meant to go join into a body. Because once you become a Christian, you actually become a member of the body of Christ. That's what you are. When you become a Christian, you become a member of the body of Christ. And as a member of the body of Christ, you are one member of that body. There are many other members in that body that you are expected to join in fellowship with. What's the purpose of that fellowship? You tell me. Accountability. Accountability. That's one. Encouragement. Encouragement. That's another. Discipleship. That's another. Hearing the preached word on a regular basis. That's another. Exaltation and worship of God. That's another. All of these are means by which God sanctifies you. That's how he has done it. In fact, in Ephesians 4, when Paul's talking about Jesus leaving, he says, what did he leave behind? He appointed pastors and teachers and shepherds and elders to govern the church. That was his solution. When he left, it was not just to leave you wandering on your own, but to appoint pastors and teachers and shepherds, elders, all the same thing, basically, over the body to help guide in truth as a means of sanctification. 
So baptism is that first way where you go public with your faith before everyone as a testimony to everyone. And then the last here is spiritual baptism unites a believer to Christ. So when you believe in Christ, you're united to him in faith, right? You believe in Christ and therefore you are united to him in faith. But water baptism unites us to the church, to the rest of his body as a means of accountability, as a means of I'm making a vow before you and you're holding me accountable for it. Now, this even goes into when we vote on members here. It's a big deal. You, as the church body, are in control of the membership. It's your responsibility. Uh, mine, too, but it's your responsibility. And so when you see a person standing before you that's already been baptized at another church, they got in the water and they said, I believe in Jesus Christ. And that church said, all right, awesome. Now get under the water. <laughs> right? They go under the water and they come up. Now they've moved. They come here. You didn't watch them be baptized. Are you just going to take their word for it? How do you know? How do you know this person's a Christian? Well, by their testimony. What do you say you believe? By the fruit in their life. Tell me what your life looks like now. How do you live in faithful obedience to the Lord now? What sort of things do you struggle with? These are evidences of someone being a Christian. And before they join in membership here with us, we better be able to affirm that they're a Christian to the best of our ability. Yes, I think that person is a Christian. There's so many churches out there that are just taking anybody that will come forward, right? Doesn't matter what you believe. If you just say the name Jesus, we'll take it. Well, wait a minute. There's a little bit of consideration here. Because what we're saying when we say you're a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church is that you can go out those doors and you can represent Christ to the community. Well, if that person comes forward and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is awesome. Well, good, you're a member. They go out and they do all kinds of awful and vile things and never turn to the Lord in repentance, ever. What do we do? That not only looks bad on EBC, EBC's the, the least of the concern. That looks bad on the name of Christ in general. Truth be told. Go ahead, Shannon. Go ahead. No, 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 no. We just need to verify before we say, yes, membership, that that baptism that you had back at, you know, Oatmeal Baptist Church was true. That that was actually a real confession and a real... You know, so there, there should be a life after that that gives evidence to the fact that you really do believe. That, that's, that's what we're here to determine. Yeah. What if they're baptized, but they strangle? Yeah. Well, now, can worms everywhere. <laughs> so, um, I, let me say it this way, and then let me go a little bit further. Um, there's no... Uh, clear direction to individual churches of this is how you have to handle that situation. Okay? 
in, in the text. So what we then do is we say immersion is the mode that we see exercised everywhere we see it exercised in the New Testament. So immersion is the mode that we use for baptism. Then the church, Emmanuel has gone one more, one more step in the bylaws and has said we only take baptism by immersion for membership. So if someone comes forward to me or comes to me and says, I want to join the church, we talk about, I, first, I talk about, are you a Christian? I, that's the first question I ask everybody is, are you a Christian? It'd be amazing how many people say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, like so far, uh, yes, a lot of people that have joined the church have, have said, uh, I don't know. That was their response. And so then we dive forward into that. And uh, when we talk about baptism, that's when I ask, where were you baptized? If they say a Baptist church, I just clarify, was that by immersion? It, if it's a Baptist church, it, I can almost guarantee you it is. When it's a Bible church, then I ask a little bit more, a few more questions, and on and on we go. Presbyterian church, probably going to be sprinkled, right? Right. And so, according to the bylaws here, we then go through an immersion baptism. So that, that's right. Yeah. Now, that, that's not true of every church. And not true of every Southern Baptist church, and not true of every Baptist church in general, but it is true of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's up to the congregation, honestly, to determine what, what do we take as a, a mode of baptism when transferring from another church. Good question. Yeah. Any other questions about that or about baptism there? Okay, so then the, the question, who can partake in the Lord's Supper? And what, what we say here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and really most Baptist churches are this way, believers in Jesus Christ who, by their own volition, all right, that's what I meant when I said adult, all right, a couple weeks ago, by their own volition have made their profession public through baptism. So it is baptized believers in Jesus Christ who were baptized by their own volition. What does that rule out? Infant baptism. Yeah. So when we say adult believers baptism, we're not talking about 18-year-olds and above. We're talking about people who made a conscious decision to follow Christ and then proceeded forth in baptism. Does that make sense? Shannon just brought a backpack of cans of worms. <laughs> Let me just open them and just throw them out there. Yeah. Well, and, and honestly, Shannon, to be, to be completely honest with you, when it comes to kids, especially younger kids, it's, a lot of it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Right? Right. So, um, Typically, the first question that I ask, especially young children, but I ask this just about with everybody, is why do you want to be baptized? And I try to leave it open enough for them to actually explain exactly why they want to be baptized. Um, and to, to be candid with you, what I'm looking for is for that individual to be really grappling with sin. That's what it, that's what it really comes down to. I have sinned. And I realize that Christ had to die for me or I would go to hell. He had to. That was the only way. At, at the point when a, a young person 
can not only conceive of that, but articulate it, and then can also turn to things in their own life and say, like that right there, that would be an example of sin that separates me from God. At that point, that's when I say, yeah, we, we really need to talk about baptism and then discipleship following that. Yep. Yeah. Before then, you know, there's a lot of parents that will, you know, have their kids, like, pray in their bedroom or whatever, you know. Honestly, so far, I haven't met a kid yet when you say, do you want to go to heaven when you die? <laughs> do you want to? Then I'll say yes, I absolutely do. Um, and so I usually encourage parents, like when your kid says, you know, I, I, I prayed to receive Christ last night or, you know, or is thinking deeply about some of these things even. Great. Encourage them. Okay, let's continue to talk about it. There's no reason why we have to rush into the water right now, right? Let's take it slow. Let's make sure that they understand what's happening and, and understand the, the gospel very clearly and their understanding that Christ had to, had to die for them or, or that was it and, and can identify sins in their, in their lives. Um, that's when I think it, it goes to the next step and, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard. I, I can tell you, just as a parent of a five-year-old, uh, five and a half now, Grayson is beginning, he can tell you, um, he can he give you all the answers. You know, he can give you all the answers. And he knows enough about death to cry. Like, he knows enough about death to, to, to cry about it. Um, he knows enough about hell to know that it's eternal punishment and to cry about it. Um, and he knows that the solution is the gospel. Um, so he knows, he, know, he knows all the answers. I mean, and that's typical of a kid that grows up, you know, in a pastor's family or grows up in church. They're going to know all the answers before they ever really connect it to reality and connect it to themselves, you know, and understand it that way. So, yeah, much different deal. Good question. All right, so does that make sense? Who can partake in it? Now, that also leaves room for someone that is traveling and has come in here on a Sunday. It's a guest of one of our members that is a professed believer in Jesus Christ that has been baptized and has made, the, or, and has made their profession public through, through baptism. They can participate with us. So long as it wasn't baptism as an infant, right? And... We also leave it open to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. We leave it open for people even that were sprinkled. So if they were in a Presbyterian church and they received baptism that way as, a, as, an, as a, an adult or somebody that made their, their own choice, then they can also participate with us in the Lord's Supper if they choose. That would be different if they decided to join our church. Now we would have a different conversation. Right? But you don't have to be a member of our church to participate. There are some churches that only allow members to participate in the Lord's Supper. So there's some Baptist churches that do that. So, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But one of the, like, like I had said, this is not just strictly a biblical argument. This is also how the church practiced it after the Bible was, was closed. There's a document um, called the Didache, which is basically the teaching of the Twelve. 
And um, that's what it means. And in the Didache, essentially, which is essentially written somewhere around 50 A.D., so that's right in the middle of Paul's missionary journeys and things like that, it's a recorded document of basically the way that the Twelve, the Apostles, taught uh, the way church should be practiced, right? And this book is not authoritative. This is not Scripture that I'm about to show you, okay? So this is not in your Bibles. This is not Scripture. But, like I said... We're looking at baptism, and we're thinking, and, and the Lord's Supper, and we're thinking, are, is, it, is that right? Is that how the New Testament is shaking out? And then you read a document written about the same time that basically confirms exactly the way you're seeing it, and it just kind of helps solidify that object you're looking at. This is what the Didache says about uh, baptism, uh, then, follow, then follow, uh, following that, the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Supper following baptism. It says, but let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist, that would be the Lord's Supper, except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning this, do not give what is holy to dogs. So essentially what they're affirming is the teaching of the twelve in the first century, what people are thinking about the Lord's Supper and baptism, is in order to take the Lord's Supper, you have to be baptized first. So it just sort of clarifies what we were seeing in the New Testament. That is actually the shape of it. You need to be baptized first, and then you can partake. Questions on that? Say that one more time. Well, it's currently not the it's not how the, the, the policy of this church. It could be. We could, we could even vote to close it off and to say Emmanuel only. And, and there's good arguments for that. I'm not disparaging. There's good arguments for that. Um, I don't think we should know. Um, we could say you have to be baptized by immersion in order to take the Lord's Supper. Currently, that's not in our document. Um, that's not to say it, would, it couldn't be later on, but it, it's not. Um, here's the reason I would steer away from that. Though I do think immersion is the preferred mode of the Bible, that is the way we see it practiced in the Bible, there's not a passage that I could point to that says, in order to baptize, you must immerse. In order for it to be a ba baptism, you must immerse. I would almost need it to be that clear in order to tell somebody you cannot pour over the head or sprinkle. Now, I don't prefer that method, and I wouldn't practice that method, but it would be very difficult, I think, to be biblically faithful and exclude someone from the Lord's Supper for being sprinkled, so long as they were doing so of their own volition and all the other qualifications are met. Now, we can certainly have those discussions, you know, but... I think that's probably the best way to, to approach it. So. Go ahead, David. Yeah, the, uh, the two preceding passages to that, the one right before it is talking about the Lord's Supper, the one before that is talking about the rite of baptism, the rite of baptism, which is the dunking, and, and there they actually lay out the modes.
and things like that, being baptized. So. Go ahead, Jolene. Um, the bread, transubstantiation, Episcopal, what are they? Consubstantiation. Um, the same would be true of a Lutheran church. I, what? Consubstantiation? That the, the is present with the bread? Trans is Catholic. Con is that the body of Jesus Christ, or that Jesus Christ is present with the bread and blood, uh, bread and, and wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, consubstantiation, I didn't know about the Episcopal, but is the same as, as Lutheran. Um, and honestly, that would be really a call of conscience, I think. But I think, well, if not if they're consubstantiation, if they're... I, I, Okay, so I, I'm not exactly sure if they're. Yeah. Okay. I, let me let me say it this way: if if the if the church that I'm going to practices transubstantiation, which means they believe that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ and the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. Um, I am going to avoid that um, because that's not what I'm communicating at all, the Lord's Supper. Um, it gets a little bit more complex when you get into like Lutheran churches. <laughs> it, it, it's a little bit uh, a little bit harder to parse some of the, the meaning there. So, good question, though. Any other questions like that? All right. Now, let's go to these. This is uh, what are we doing when we're taking it? Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, who would take that? Go ahead, uh, Pat, Miss Pat. And Matthew, 9, uh, that should be Matthew 18. Sorry, if you're writing that down, it should be Matthew 18, 19 to 20. So who will take that? Matthew 18, 19 to 20. Shannon, will you take that? So Miss Pat, whenever you have it. Yes, ma'am. So he says, when we take of the bread and when we take of the wine, are we not participating with Christ in that act? Now, what does he mean by that? That's a question we've got we've to answer. What does he mean when he says that? Um, and now Matthew 18, 19 to 20. Okay, now I want to connect two things that kind of seem like they're in, in different places. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, as Miss Pat read it, says the cup of blessing 
that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And then he says, um, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Now, what does he mean there? What does that mean? Is it not participation in the body of Christ? What does that mean? Yeah. And now, if you look at the next verse in verse 17, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So he's saying, when we take of the bread and the wine, we are all participating together in unison. We are one body. We are the body of Christ. Now, why are we the body of Christ? And why, is it, why are we seen as the body of Christ when we take of the bread and the juice? That's right. All of us together are identifying ourselves under one confession. We're all making the same confession at the same time. So we are all in unison there. We are all there together in unison with one voice saying we believe this. Now, when you go to Matthew 18, 19 to 20, what does he say there? Yeah, where two or more are gathered together in agreement, I am there in their midst. Now, the context, as we're going to talk about this Sunday, the context of that passage is in church discipline. So talking about when does a person... When is a person removed of membership? When do we pull membership away from that person and say that person is no longer a member of this church? When does that happen? Well, he says when the body comes together and the body decides in agreement, in unison, that this is this person, then membership is removed. That's what you do. All right? But what he leaves it open for is any time you're there together in agreement, he is there in your midst. Now, what is he doing? Yes. Now, if I were to say to you, God be with you, what does that mean? The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. I say, God bless you. And, I'm, and I mean it. It's not just one of those, like, you sneeze or something. I mean, I'm, I mean, I like actually say, the Lord be with you. You're going through a rough time. How? Yeah. Yeah, and so what would I expect you, or what would I hope you feel? Yeah, peace, right? That's, that's basically what I'm wishing upon you, is I'm saying the Lord be with you, and as a physical reality of His presence with you, you would experience peace in a way you wouldn't otherwise. So when he says, when two or three are gathered together in agreement, I'm there in their midst, he means in a tangible, real way, in a sanctifying way. Not that he's not there always. Of course he is, always. We've been studying. God is omnipresent, right? But in particular, when the body comes together with one voice in agreement, there is a sanctifying process that takes place. Because what are you having to do? 
You're having to confess Christ. You're having to think about his death on your behalf. You're having to think about the sins that you have committed. You're laying those down before you partake of the bread. So there's all kinds of things that all of our minds collectively are focused on one task at hand. He's there in our midst. So there's a, there's a very, when we come together and we agree with one another, we're, fel- we're, we're fellowshipping with Christ in a very real and tangible way when we take the Lord's Supper. That's one reason. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Who will take that? Why don't I just take it since I'm right here? Um, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what do we do? What's another reason we take the Lord's Supper? That's right. We're proclaiming His death. What does it mean to proclaim His death? What's that? Yeah, we, we believe it. We believe it and we believe that it has an atoning, it has done its atoning work in our life. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, should. Run. I would rec- I'd recommend anybody run from that church and take if, as many people with them as they can. Uh, but, um, so, well, we're, we're actually about, what, what's that? Yeah, I would definitely recommend they leave. Um, but, but we're actually about to step on that in just a minute. Because there's a very real problem with his logic, and it runs right into Paul's logic with the Lord's Supper. And so proof positive that it's, it's absolutely not for everybody. But I'm going to answer that in just one second. What does it mean to proclaim the Lord's death? We agree. We, we say in unison, it has it done its atoning work in our life, right? Okay, last one is the very next set of verses in 1127 to 32. This is what it says. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, here you go, Mike, here it is, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when, you, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So essentially, that pastor who leaves open the communion to just any Tom, Dick, or Harry that wants to walk in and take it is basically saying, here, would you like a cup of judgment? I mean, that's really what's happening. And unless that person, that undiscerning person, whom I'm just going to assume that over the years, that however long he's been, he's been uh, doing it this way, practicing it this way, there's bound to have been one, non, uh, one unbeliever in there 
that has taken the communion. What is he doing? That's not a gift to that person. That's condemnation. It's condemnation to a believer who partakes of the Lord's Supper with sin in his heart. Knowingly taking the Lord's Supper with sin in my heart. Whether that be sin towards another person, an outward sin, sin that more than just you know about, or sin only you know about. You're heaping condemnation on yourself. So how do we take the Lord's Supper? Well, for one, we, pu- we purify our consciences. In the Lord's Supper, we're, we're purifying conscience there. We're not only reflecting on what Christ has done, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're not only doing that, We're not only agreeing with one another as to what confession is and saying we're fellowshipping with Christ here. He is very real and present in our lives right now. But we're also cleansing our conscience of any outstanding sin. So what does that mean if there is bad blood between you and another individual? Has to be reconciled before you ever Take the cup or the bread. That's right. Go as far as you absolutely can to reconcile that. What if there's sin that I've done on the way to church? I know I did. For sure. Confess it. That's why we have that time before the Lord's Supper of confession. That's that time for you to sit there and for you to think on all the things that you have done. On all the things that you know about that you can confess. You lay those before the Lord. And if there's something with you and another person, maybe they're not in this room, you go reconcile. It'd be better to let that plate go this time and catch it the next time than to go ahead and take it. Paul even says, that's why some of you have died. And he even goes on to say, the Lord took you out so that you didn't have to die along with the rest of the world in hell. The Lord basically saved you early. (laughs) That's essentially what he's saying. That's terrifying. I mean, that is terrifying. So when we talk about the Lord's Supper, why do we do it? The The Lord's Supper publicly unites the church in its confession and calls us towards remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. Bringing about repentance. Questions? Go ahead, Ms. Pat. right. The good thing is, uh, one, of, one, of my, uh, one of my favorites 
of all time. He says, if we confess, it's 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in 2, 1, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the good part is exactly what you're saying. That's absolutely true. But what's also true is that time of confession is very serious. Take it, confess, and at least I believe the Bible affirms you're forgiven. Yeah? Right? <laughs> well, and, and yeah. But, but honestly, you know, when, when I did the prayer guide and the, um, with the Acts prayer model, confession being one of those things, and have begun starting to do some of that in the service of prayers of confession and things like that, this is part of the reason why. This is, whether we take the Lord's Supper on that Sunday or, or not, this, this needs to be a, a, something that's in front of our faces, Right? We need to be having this conversation because I really do think there are a lot of people in the church that just that, you know, regard confession as, you know, either something they don't need to mention to the person next to them or something they just need to, you know, kind of keep to themselves and then they forget to do it. They hem-haw around about it. I'm that way. I mean, we're all that way from time to time. We're human in that regard, too. And so... Uh, but it's, it's important that it be brought right in front of our faces so that we realize what well, confession needs to be done by us regularly. Not just in a time where I like, you know, sit on my couch in the morning when the kids aren't up and you know, when it's all dark outside and I have a little time of confession there and I never revisit that for the rest of the day. But as, as Spurgeon kind of used to say about prayer that it's like a, a revolver on his hip that he just pulls and fires at any moment he really needs it, right? So prayer for us and even confession are those times when we walk away from that person and we know I should have shared the gospel. Maybe they're long gone. We don't have a chance to do so anymore. That we can confess that right then. I don't have to wait till tomorrow when I'm on my couch, right? Um, so it's, a, it's something that needs to be brought into our consciousness, consciousness and needs to uh, be, be a part of our just natural reflexes, just, you know, just like blinking would be. Prayer becomes that. Confession becomes that. It makes us more attuned to the, the times where we actually do, you know, step on it. I think, I think that means we need to go. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we, uh, there's not a formal declaration of this is how often we take it. Um, Right now, we're going to be doing it about every six weeks. So uh, we're, next time will be Easter. Um, my, my, my preference would be much more frequent than that. Um, as you can see with the Lord's Supper, um, it's not. I think sometimes when you practice it more frequently, people get scared that you're becoming Catholic or something. Or like, you know, we're doing it's like, a, is this, oh, this is all of a sudden becoming liturgical. That's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It really does unite us in our confession of Christ, and it does bring us to confession of our, our own sin. It brings 
all those things to mind in a very real and tangible way that, um, that you, you don't otherwise, otherwise have, you know? Um, so my, my preference is, is much more frequent than that. Yeah. Go ahead, Skeeter. No, no. We would call them ordinances, um, but essentially, historically, um, the only two ordinances that have been named consistently by everyone throughout church history, all of church history, all the way back to the New Testament, is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yes, Erica. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Interceding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Very comforting. Yeah. And and if you read uh, Psalm, I think it's Psalm one thirty nine. David is is pretty clear. He doesn't know every sin in his heart. He's confident that there are sins that he does not know about. And that's why he says, "Search me, and try me." And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me into life everlasting. I don't know all the sins that are in my heart. That's why I need you to try me so that they're exposed. Because I don't want to go on with these things. <laughs> yeah. Good point there. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts? <laughs> You'd have to start using some turtle doves, probably. <laughs> those are those are only two cents. Give me those. Huh? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, David Maxwell. Before the uh, well, John baptizes first. Um, John's baptism is, is very like the baptism the Jews would do of a Gentile when they convert to Judaism, a proselyte. So it would be, it would be like a ritual cleansing. That's where the, kind of the, the thought came from. It's not for, a for, totally foreign concept to them, but it hadn't been practiced long before John, for sure. So there was, uh, no, not much, of a, not much of a knowledge of that before before John the Baptist was there. At most. No. No. It would have been in that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament. And uh, we, we're, we're confident that Jews were washing proselytes um, as like a ceremonial cleansing. And that when John baptizes, it's a clear message. <laughs> 
why don't you go ahead and jump in here too, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but other than that, n- no, nothing in scripture for sure. Well, thanks for being here. Again, with the baptism conversation and the Lord's Supper conversation, we, I understand this is, gonna, this is probably going to be ongoing. I aim to get more of these and just, you know, kind of put them out there so you can pick them up and just read them. Um, and I, I think they'd be helpful. But uh, ask questions or, or things like that if you want to. Email me. Um, come by the office. Call me. Whatever. And we can continue to talk about it. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for being able to come together and just and really just talk about something so important as baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, Lord, we we pray that um, in the process of this, maybe there has been some clarity um, of mind, maybe some clarity of conscience that has happened here as we've discussed this. I pray, Lord, that this would be for the further sanctification of your body, bringing us together as Emmanuel Baptist Church so that we can better proclaim um, your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension Um, the fact that you're ruling at the right hand of God right at this very moment and that we can can proclaim the resurrection of Christ even now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant us um, the ability to do that, um, give to us boldness that it would take to be able to proclaim that to people that are lost. And, uh, Lord, we we do ask that you would um, give us the confidence as we take the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience, a confidence that indeed in our confession we have been forgiven and that we can rely on those promises as well. Lord, we know that you are good and that you have in store for us what is good. And so we trust in that as well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.